Hello, this is William. And hello, this is Jake, and it's time to tune into the world. Today we are going to be talking about a variety of different things that have happened over the course of the past uh, week or so, and actually over the past month. So we will start with Donald Trump's cabinet picks uh, and how those will continue to influence his campaign or his uh, future presidency. So William, why don't you start with that? Right. Well, the biggest announcement that's that's come out recently. Well, I'm, I'm, there's been a couple. The Steve Munchen uh, has has come out as the Treasury Secretary. General Mad Dog Mattis and Will you know Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce. Uh, Elaine Chow as Secretary of Labor. So a couple of big names that have come out in the last week or so in the Trump cabinet. And really, the the one last big position we're waiting for. Well, there's a couple. Obviously, there's Director of National Intelligence. Uh, that's the big one. That's that's a big one, and uh, obviously the Secretary of State. Now, there's been everyone's from Rudy Giuliani to General Petraeus to uh, Bolton, uh, the former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. So there's been a number of names. So Giuliani, Romney, a number of names have been circulating around this uh, this. This position, and from as I, from what I've observed, the Trump campaign, the Trump transition team seems to be at a point of sheer. You know, there seems to be a lot of arguments. I think the majority of I think Bannon and his sort of alt right crew will be pulling for someone along the lines of Giuliani. Uh, you know, someone a little bit harsher. I think that. Other members of his transition team, uh, including his vice president, will be pulling with someone a little bit more moderate, Mitt Romney perhaps, or uh, David Petraeus. He's still there. Now, yes, he had the scandal uh, with Mrs. Paula Broadwell, his journalist who was writing a book on him, and he sort of slipped her some classified information. It was this big whole thing. It was, and he was pretty, he was disgraced, really. I think he was given an unfair rep for for something that was kind of minor compared to what Hillary Clinton has, did with her emails. And I would say he's in the running. I, in my order, I would have Romney, then Petraeus, then maybe Giuliani or Bolton in some order. But I don't think Giuliani's going to get it because I, I think Trump has realized that this man is out of office rocker. He was very good when he was a mayor, when he was young, but I, as he's gotten older, he started to, I mean, for lack of a better word, deteriorate. Now, that's that's a side. Uh, in terms of director for national intelligence, that's a pretty important role. So perhaps if Petraeus doesn't get the job uh, at the Secretary of State, perhaps he's in line for Homeland Security, head of Homeland Security, or head of direct of director of national intelligence. So, there, what Trump is doing, and I think it's very smart, is he's taking people who are used to running large corporations, corp, you know, businesses, corporations, uh, military armies, and he's putting them in positions of strategic importance. Right? You see, Mad Dog Mattis. It's very rare we have a defense secretary who was a general. Very rare. 
And I think that's a brilliant job because a general knows, you know, Matt, Mattis knows what it's like to run a, a Marine division. He knows what the shortfalls, what the department has struggled with, what the Army needs, what were some of the problems, you know, why, wh- you know, what happened in Afghanistan? Why were U.S., why did U.S. troops go in there unprepared? You know, wh- what happened? So that's a question that, that, you know, I think we should all look at is, why, you know, why is he picking these generals and is it a good job? And I would say it is. Uh, Niall Ferguson, a conservative columnist for the well, not a columnist, but he a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, has written a very complimentary article about Mattis, saying he's very strategic, he's smart, he's intelligent, and he knows what he's doing. And I think that's a very good, that's a, it's quite a compliment coming from Niall Ferguson, who was who's been a vicious critic of Trump. That's aside, if Trump appoints someone as Romney. A so-called establishment that now he's gonna ha- he's gonna face a moral dilemma. Does he appoint someone like Romney and sort of and sort of become a bit of a hypocrite and say, oh well, I'm anti-establishment, yeah, but I've got the most establishment person in my cabinet, or or perhaps this is more of a signaling shift of well, I'm gonna try and make the best cabinet possible. Now, for him, I think the better the best thing to do would be to take Romney as Secretary of State. Petraeus is very competent and he is very smart. I will give him that. He's a brilliant general. He probably would be an excellent statesman. But I think that scandal and the way it came out literally will hang over him whatever he does. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Trump will look past him. Maybe 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 look look past him. But whatever. For me, Romney is a safe establishment pick um and even though it goes against trump's you know policy on the establishment i should say because he's obviously very anti-establishment even though it goes against that i think it's important to consider how divided in some senses the republican party is and see what we think about you know, what Trump thinks about uniting the party and using all the tools to his disposal to unite the party. So, including Romney, the, the establishment's pick as the 2012 nominee to try to beat Obama, uh, using him as part of his team is likely to get some of the congressmen and senator Republican uh, members to kind of join his side a little more. I think that's that's exactly right. I think you know Trump has realized either through his own intelligence or someone has told him up front, perhaps it was Mr. McConnell or Paul Ryan has told him that without the support of the establishment, he will be useless. And I think he's also been told that this is this is a very rare opportunity. This is a once in a generation uh, situation where the Republican Party has both houses of Congress and the White House. That's unprecedented. You were saying in a previous podcast it hasn't happened since 1928 or some, something along those lines. Something like that, yes. This is incredible. And I think he's, been, and think he's realized that if he has the establishment on his side and he doesn't go ahead with the Muslim ban and, and the wall on this, and he gets and he puts through that and he puts down that conservative agenda, okay, repeal Obamacare, Iran deal sanctions, Planned Parenthood defund, this, this, this. He puts that on the table. All of a sudden he's a new candidate. He's he's in his, he's redeemed himself, and the Democrats, on the other, he will essentially undermine the credibility. What he will, what I think he's done is, 
Now, excuse my tangent, but I think it's a worthwhile one, it is, if there's ever such a thing. Anyway, the Conservative Party in the UK has, after they lost to Blair, they realized they needed to somehow undermine the credibility of the Labour Party. And over the last several years, they have adopted one or two Labour Party platform ideas, whether that be capping uh, CEOs' pay, whether that be the stamp tax, raising taxes, and da da so there were a number of, of, of points put on that plan, and it worked, and it's worked. The Labour Party's in a shambles. And so what I think Trump could be possibly be doing is taking a few democratic ideas, taking the idea of, okay, maybe no free trade, just stopping jobs, you know, for the working class. And this is a very good strategy because it's undermining Democrat, mostly Democratic voters. For example, General Flynn, the national security, uh, national security advisor, was a Democrat, a, pr- a pretty strong one too, until he was fired by, Obama, by the Obama administration and on and on and on, and here he is now with, with Trump. So, point being, he could be trying to undermine the Democratic uh, Party. And you've already seen that. I mean... I think the the fact that Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan all voted for him is is the first indication that he's in undermining the Democratic Party. I mean, CNN ran an article uh, right after the election called "Let the Democratic Party Crash and Burn," um, because basically, th- from from the CNN point of view, um, and and I mean, CNN presents a very liberal viewpoint of the world. You know, it, it was the end of the world from the, from the CNN point of view. And the fact that the Democrats had not won was both shocking, but also made them kind of look at themselves and think, what did we do so wrong to lose the presidency to a man who, I mean, has no political experience and said all sorts of weird things? I mean, we could go on and on about why Donald Trump might have lost the presidency. But the fact is is that he won and he beat Clinton, Hillary Clinton, who was one of the most experienced politicians ever to run for the office. And so if we look at that, you have to think, why did the Democrats perform so poorly in the swing states? Because Hillary won the popular vote, and we know that. But why did they perform so poorly in the swing states? And that might come down to the fact that Trump is adopting policies, adopting things that previous Republican nominees had not, you know, have not been willing to to adopt. Trump's policy on free trade is one of uh, the examples that you provided and is, I think, the main example. Republicans have always been pretty much a free trade party, but Trump saw the need, Trump saw the want of the people in uh, like Rust Belt manufacturing states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, for the, their manufacturing jobs back. And so he adapted. He adapted to that fact and he saw that if he had a policy that was anti-free trade and restructuring NAFTA and restructuring the TPP, then he could win. And that's what he did. In something that was unprecedented. So that's at least one side of the Atlantic um, talked down, described, picked apart by us. Now we're going to move eastward to Europe, where today, uh, Sunday, December 4th, uh, Nicholas Hoffler, uh, 
Hoffler, the far-right presidential candidate in Austria, has lost his election uh, to the Green Party. Uh, and it, people, are, people have been saying, oh, this is the end of the populist surge. Well, that's not necessarily true because Austrians are quite liberal as things go. Uh, um, uh, Hoffler was not anti-EU. He wasn't particularly... He was far right, but he was. I would not put him in the same category as Marie Le Pen or, or the Dutch politician Gert Wilders. That is a big development in Europe. I Secondly, think, I think I'm going to add to that. I think um, you make a good point about populism. We will see whether the populist movement has truly swept over the earth in the French election, uh, which is next year. Uh, we'll see if Marie Le Pen and the anti-EU, anti-immigration policy that she brings to the table wins out in France. And if it does, then you have serious evidence for a populist movement across the, across the globe. You have the, the U.S. election, you have the Brexit vote, you would have the French election, you have what's happening in the Philippines right now with Duterte. Um, and so that would that would be significant enough, I think, if the French elected her uh, to call it a movement. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I, I think today, um, if you aren't aware, today is the Italian constitutional referendum. Voters in Italy have gone to the polls. The polls have now closed. In about an, two and a half hours, we will know... If, if the C or the no campaign won. Now, obviously, the vote was over. More powers to the executive and the no campaign, mostly spearheaded by the Liga Norte, League of the North, sort of the, the, the far-right anti-immigrant party that occupies the north of the country. The five-star movement, uh, led by Italian comedian Beppe Grillo, and Forza Italia, the center-right party uh, that was Berlusconi's party, have all been against the no. And they've compared... Uh, Renzi's idea of expanded uh, constitutional power as that of to what happened to Mussolini. Partly as to why Italy's government is so convoluted with two houses, but there's a, there's a this, there's a that, is because people do not want to have another Mussolini. Because remember, World War II was not a... Uh, the German occupation of Italy was quite harsh. And that's not to say that any Ger German occupation wasn't harsh, but Italy was, was particularly harsh. Florence was completely destroyed when the Germans pulled out, and the fighting was very vicious. So the Italians made sure, in 1948, when they wrote their constitution, never to have another Mussolini. And so this is, the, this is what's happening. The no vote is trying to portray Renzi as this sort of Mussolini-like figure demanding more executive power. And also... This referendum has been turned as a anti, uh, an anti-Renzi referendum. If you don't like refer if you don't like Renzi, well then vote no. And, and generally and speaking, early early exit polls uh, from Italian media uh, have suggested that the no vote uh, won by a pretty significant margin. So it was the Italian, um, the Italians do seem to be backing uh, kind of the the populist parties which supported a no vote. Uh, and the Renzi, the prime minister, suggested he would resign if uh, there was a no uh, outcome. And I think the no uh, will win. Yep. And I also think that 
this is the beginning of the end for the euro. I'm going to talk about this very briefly. But Italy, the economy is barely growing. What, half a percent? Not even a percent. Just under half a percent. The economy's been growing. It's been poor. Debt is out of control. The ECB has been buying Italian debt for years. Well, for the last couple of years. Spain is, in, is not in the best. It's doing better, better than Italy, but it's not in a good state. Portugal isn't in a good state either. France, youth unemployment is high. But that's more, more to do with the policies enacted by Francois Hollande. The 35-hour week. Greece is in trouble. At least it hasn't made the headlines, but they're not in a good place. So, but the Germans, oh, well, this is a dream come true. Well, it's like, for German exports, this is brilliant. Austerity, mm-mm, perfect. We can sell our cars everywhere. We can sell our tires, da 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 Continental, yes. Airbus, oh, it's fantastic. But for France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, times are not good. The common currency has not helped these countries. It's crippled them. They cannot run budget deficits. They cannot enact uh, these policies that would help them get out of these recessions. And you're seeing the Five Star Party. They're not you know, the Five Star Party is not anti-EU. At least they have sort of dodged the question. They've sort of said, "Well, we're we're anti-Euro and anti-Europe, but we're not anti-EU." So we so they sort of they've dodged the question. And the point is, I think if they get in in the next election or i think if there's one more really bad i think i think the world's due for a bad recession i know i don't want to sound like a gloom gloom day person a gloomy person but i think it's been 10 years almost 10 years since 2008 and i just think we're due for something interest rates have been very low i think we're due for some sort of a shock but anyway if it happens in europe and if italy is hit again and it's an election and the five-star party gets it i think italy is going to leave the euro and go back to the layer. Now that would cause ter- that would cause problems for foreign businesses because you know it'd be difficult for them. Also, it would people would lose a lot of money off of that, off of changing change because no one has ever left the single currency. Uh, but I think if Italy votes to leave the euro, and and they after several you know decade or two recover and do start to do very well, I think you'll see other countries leave. Moreover. The EU, as a political entity, is in denial. You're seeing in the, in the Netherlands, the Freedom Party, the far-right party, is pulling ahead of the part of the sitting party. In France, the National Front is the second most popular party after, well, was after the Socialists. In Spain, there are growing parties there. In Italy, the Five Star Party has risen to power. In Germany, the AFD, Angela Merkel, at the start of the year... Her popularity was over 70%. I think it was about 75%. Now it's under 50 and falling. In England, the UK Independence Party, although you might say is in a bit of a, is in a shambles, has regained leadership and is now going after Labour votes and is twiddling its thumbs, hoping for a snap election so they can gain a foothold. Times, Europe is changing. And I'm going to end the podcast, I think, here. If France, if Renzi does lose this vote, which I think he will, as Jake, you've just suggested, and I just had a look, and those exit polls are just about, I think it's about 58% for no, 42 for yes. 
I think it is the beginning of the end for Europe and the Euro. Well, that will conclude our podcast. Uh, thank you, for William, for that bold prediction. Um, next week, we will surely have something interesting to talk about. Uh, I just want to add in before we go that the death of Fidel Castro has had some widespread effects, um, and we've had different reactions from uh, different people across the world, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to that next week. And also that just now the Army Corps of Engineers says it will not uh, approve the current route for the Dakota Access Pipeline and that they will reroute it after protest by the Rock Sioux Tribe uh, in North Dakota. And so that is a an impactful environmental decision and surely one that will set precedent for future decisions. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening.